0: LESSONS 11 AND 12 OF THE HISTORY OF LONDON This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. THE HISTORY OF LONDON BY WALTER BESANT LESSON 11 THE WALL OF LONDON Let us examine into the history and the course of the Wall of London, if only for the very remarkable facts that the boundary of the city was determined for fifteen hundred years by the erection of this wall that for some purposes the course of the wall still affects the Government of London, and that it was only pulled down bit by bit in the course of the last century. You will see, by reference to the map, what was the course of the wall. It began starting from the east where the White Tower now stands. Part of the foundation of the tower consists of a bastion of the Roman Wall. It followed a line nearly north, as far as Aldgate, then it turned in a north-westerly direction, just north of Camomile Street and Bevis Marks, to Bishopsgate. Thence it ran nearly due west, north of the street called London Wall, turning south at Monkwell Street. At Aldersgate it turned west until it reached Newgate, where it turned nearly south again, and so to the river. A little east of the present Blackfriars Bridge. It ran lastly along the river bank to join its eastern extremity. The river wall had openings or gates at Dowgate and Bishopsgate, and probably at Queenhithe. The length of the wall, without counting the river side, was two miles and six hundred and eight feet. This formidable wall was originally about twelve feet thick made of rubble and mortar, the latter very hard, and faced with stone. You may know Roman work by the courses of tiles or bricks. They are arranged in double layers about two feet apart. The so-called bricks are not in the least like our bricks, being six inches long, twelve inches wide, and one and a half inches thick. The wall was twenty feet high with towers and bastions at intervals about fifty feet high. At first there was no moat or ditch, and it will be understood that in order to protect the city from an attack of barbarians, Picts or Scots, it was enough to close the gates and to man the towers. The invaders had no ladders. In the course of centuries a great many repairs and rebuildings of the wall took place. The Saxons allowed it to fall into a ruinous condition. Alfred rebuilt it and strengthened it. The next important repairs were made in the reign of King John in 1215, by Henry III, Edward I, Edward II, Edward III, Richard II, Edward IV. After these various rebuildings, there would seem to be little left of the original wall. That, however, a great part of it continued to be the hard rubble core of the Roman work, seems evident from the fact that the course of the wall was never altered. The only alteration was when they turned the wall west at Ludgate, down to the Fleet River, and so to the confluence of the Fleet and the Thames. The river side of the wall was also allowed to be removed. The city was thus protected by a great wall pierced by a few gates with bastions and towers. At the east end, after the Norman conquest, rose the great white tower still standing. At the west end was a tower called Montfichet's Tower. But a wall without a ditch, where a ditch was possible, "'became of little use as soon as scaling ladders were invented "'with wooden movable towers and other devices. "'A ditch was accordingly constructed in the year 1211 "'in the reign of King John. "'It appears to have been from the very first "'neglected by the citizens, "'who trusted more to their own bravery "'than to the protection of a ditch. "'It was frequently ordered to be cleansed and repaired.' It abounded, when it was clean, with good fish of various kinds, but it was gradually allowed to dry up, until, in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, nothing was left but a narrow channel, or no channel at all but a few scattered ponds, with market gardens planted in the ditch itself. In Agass's map of London, these gardens are figured, with summer houses and cottages for the gardeners and cattle grazing. On the west side, north of Ludgate, the ditch has entirely disappeared, and houses are built against the wall on the outside. Hound's Ditch is a row of mean houses facing the moat. Four Street is also built over against the moat. Within and without the wall they placed churchyards, those of St. Alphage, All Hallows and St. Martin's Outwich you may still see for yourselves within the wall. That of St. Augustine's at the north end of St. Mary-Axe has vanished. Those of the three churches of St. Botolph-Bishopsgate, Aldgate, Aldersgate, and that of St. Giles are churchyards without the wall. Then the ditch became filled up, and houses were built all along the wall, within and without. Thus began, unchecked, perhaps openly encouraged, the gradual demolition of the wall, It takes a long time to tear down a wall of solid rubble twelve feet thick. It took the Londoners about a hundred and sixty years. In the year 1760 they finally removed the gates. Most of the wall was gone by this time, but large fragments remained here and there. You may still see a considerable piece, part of a bastion, in the churchyard of St. Giles, and the vestry of All Hallows-on-the-Wall, is built upon a bastion. In Camomile Street, and in other places, portions of the wall have been discovered, where excavations have been made. And, of course, the foundation of the wall exists still, from end to end. End of Lesson Eleven Lesson Twelve, Norman, London When William the Conqueror received the submission of the city, he gave the citizens a charter, their first charter, of freedom. There can be no doubt that the charter was the price demanded by the citizens, and willingly paid by the conqueror in return for their submission. The following is the document. Short as it is, the whole future of the city is founded upon these few words. William, king, greets William, bishop and Gosfrith port Reef, and all the burghers within London, French and English, friendly. I do you to wit that I will that ye be all law-worthy that were in King Edward's day, and I will that every child be his father's heir after his father's day. And I will not endure that any man offer any wrong to you. God keep you." End quote. The ancient charter itself is preserved at Guildhall. Many copies of it and translations of it were made from time to time. Let us see what it means. The citizens were to be law-worthy, as they had been in the days of King Edward. This meant that they were to be free men in the courts of justice, with the right to be tried by their equals, that is, by jury all who were law-worthy in King Edward's day. Serfs were not law-worthy, for instance. That the children should inherit their father's property was, as much as the preceding clause, great security to the freedom of the city, for it protected the people from any feudal claims that might arise. Next observe that there was never any Earl of London. The city had no lord but the king, It never would endure any lord but the king. An attempt was made, but only one, and that was followed by the downfall of the queen, Matilda, who tried it. Feudal customs arose and flourished and died, but they were unknown in this free city. But the city, with its strong walls, its great multitude of people, and its resources, might prove so independent as to lock out the king. William therefore began to build the tower by means of which he could not only keep the enemy out of london but could keep his own strong hand upon the burghers he took down a piece of the wall and enclosed 12 acres of ground in which he built his stronghold within a deep and broad ditch the work was entrusted to gundulf bishop of rochester who left it unfinished when he died 30 years after the next great charter of the city was granted by Henry I. He remitted the payment of the levies for feudal service, of tax called Danegeld, originally imposed for buying off the Danes, of the murder tax, of wager of battle, that is, that form of trial in which the accused and the accuser fought it out, and from certain tolls. He also gave the citizens the county of Middlesex to farm. On payment to the Crown of £300 a year, a payment still made. They were to appoint a sheriff for the county, and they were to have leave to hunt in the forests of Middlesex, Surrey, and the Chiltern Hills. They were also empowered to elect their own justiciar, and allowed to try their own cases within their own limits. This was a very important charter. No doubt, like the first, it was stipulated as a price for the support of the city. William Rufus was killed on Thursday, Henry was in London on Saturday. He must therefore have ridden hard to get over the hundred and twenty miles of rough bridle track between the New Forest and London. But the city supported him, and this was their reward. We are gradually approaching the modern constitution of the city. The Portreeve, or First Magistrate, in the year 1189, in the person of Henry Fitz Aylwyn, assumed the title of Mayor, not Lord Mayor, the title came later, a habit or style, never a rank conferred. With him were two sheriffs, the sheriff of the city and the sheriff of the county. There was the bishop, there was the city judiciar with his courts. There were also the aldermen, not yet an elected body. The Londoners elected Stephen king, and stood by him through all the troubles that followed. The plainest proof of the strength and importance of the city is shown in the fact that when Matilda took revenge on London by depriving the city of its charters, the citizens rose and drove her out of London, and made her cause hopeless. End of Lesson 12 Recording by Ruth Golding